Hey, everyone. Quick note to say that about halfway through this episode, there is a word from a sponsor. It's from the founder of a new productivity platform that I'm excited about and that I think you might want to know about. I don't think it will slow the show down, but if you find it intolerable to hear an ad on this podcast, you can get ad-free editions by going to patreon.com slash the unspeakable and supporting the show at any level. You'll also get it a few days earlier than the public feed. Got it? Okay. Feminism was what saved me. Liberalism is what saved me. These values, these ideas were so important to me. It was, I had to risk my life to be able to live by these values. And to have fellow feminists and fellow liberals refuse to acknowledge or engage with, you know, these traumatic situations that I'm talking to you about is so painful. I mean, they will go on and on about how we need to listen to women's authentic stories. We need to let women tell stories with their voices. Uh, We need to uh, believe women. But then when women like me start to speak out, it's like, no, 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 not you though. You don't count. You're not included in this. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest, Yasmin Mohammed, is an author and a human rights activist, advocating for the rights of those living under religious extremism. You wouldn't think that would be controversial, but the extremism she focuses on is Islamic extremism, specifically the fundamentalism that has arisen in the Islamic world over the last several decades and profoundly changed people's lives. And that includes often draconian rules imposed upon women. Again, you'd think speaking out against that would be a given, but progressive norms in the West now often frame criticism of Islam as a form of bigotry. And Yasmin, who considers herself an ex-Muslim, is now considered both a heretic of Islam and an inconvenient social justice figure among Western activists. She spoke with me about this strange positioning and also shared part of her own story. She grew up in a fundamentalist Islamic household in Canada and was forced into marriage to a man who turned out to be a member of Al-Qaeda. She also talked about what it's like to be forced to live behind a veil, as well as the prevalence of practices like female genital mutilation in both the Islamic world and within immigrant communities in the West. Yasmin Mohammed, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Megan. You are an author and a human rights activist. Your focus is on bringing awareness to women's rights violations in Muslim-majority countries, as well as Muslim immigrant communities in the West. I want to talk, of course, about your personal story and also your organization, Free Hearts, Free Minds. But before that, um, I want to paint a scene for you and get your reaction. I thought this might be a useful way to open this conversation. So. Uh, say I'm walking down the street in New York City, where I live right now. Um, I'm in a neighborhood with a lot of immigrants, maybe in Brooklyn, and I pass a woman in hijab, maybe in full niqab, walking along with her children. Okay, so I have the thought in my mind that this woman 
has obstacles in her life that I can't even imagine. But overall, like as a good liberal person who is pro-immigrant on principle, um, I have, I, I don't think I'm really alone in this. I have almost a warm feeling about this woman. Like seeing her, I think to myself, how great that she can walk down the street in New York City and no one bats an eye. She's free to practice her religion. Maybe she's freer in many ways here than in her own country. Okay, so Yasmin, what am I missing when I look at this? Tell me what I'm not seeing. Well, everything you said is absolutely correct. I mean, all of that is very true. She, you know, it is it is wonderful that she can feel freer in New York City than she can in the country of her family's birth, probably, if they're from somewhere in the Middle East or North Africa or in a Muslim majority country. Obviously, women there are not afforded the same uh, rights as she would enjoy in New York City. There's no doubt about that. So that is something to feel warm and happy about. Um, but when I think of myself, when I wore hijab and when I wore niqab, it was put on me as a child against my will. And um, this it's a very common thing. It's, it's very commonly put on young girls because it's easier to put it on young girls than it is to put it on an adult. So for young girls, you can show them pictures of a wrapped up lollipop. This, these are very super common images that you can find if you Google them. They're on huge billboards in Iran. So there'll be a picture of a, a wrapped up lollipop and then a lollipop that is not wrapped up and it's covered in ants and bugs, you know. And then you say to the little child, which one of these lollipops would you prefer? And then, of course, she says, well, I prefer the wrapped one that isn't covered in bugs. And you say, yes. And that's why you need to wrap yourself up so that you can be a nice, clean, good lollipop that is desired. And then you get taught about, um, you know, not even that subversively, but you're taught about victim blaming. You're taught that you need to cover yourself because you are fitna. You will cause chaos in the world if men see you and, you know, it causes them to go astray because you haven't covered yourself properly. That's your responsibility. You're taught about slut shaming. You're taught that girls who cover themselves are, are clean and pure and are going to go to heaven and girls who don't cover themselves are going to burn in hell and they're filthy and dirty and they're whores and nobody wants to marry them. And so the hijab is more than just simply a piece of cloth. There's a whole ideology. There's a whole anti-women misogynist ideology behind the reason for putting this cloth on little girls. Yeah. And of course the niqab is a completely different story because that's like all of these issues that I talked about, but then multiply that by, you know, hundreds of thousands more, because of course, you are essentially covered in a body bag while you're still breathing. So there's... Yeah, let's know. actually go through um, just just as a sort of um, kind of primer here. Can, let's, mm -hmm. can we go through the kinds of coverings? There's like, yes, just... The hijab, that refers to just a headscarf. Like, what are the categories here? Well, so 
In actuality, hijab just means separation or covering, but colloquially it's used to refer to the Islamic head covering that covers everything except for the face and hands. So that's the more common covering that you'd see. So that's why it's referred to as hijab. Um, But then there are different levels of also hijab that are covering the face and hands. So for me, for example, I wore gloves and then a, a face covering. That's that's the niqab. That's the niqab, which is also called a burqa. These are just different languages. So burqa, chador, you'll you'll hear it referred to as different things. But essentially, if it's covering the face, um, it's a more extremist interpretation of hijab. But it's it's the exact same thing. It's just more cloth. Okay, because one of these, you, there's usually a slit for the eyes. And then is it the burqa that has the full face covering? Yeah, so that's just like stylistically, I guess. Okay. Uh, in Afghanistan, it kind of has like this grid pattern. Like a, it kind of looks like a mesh. Kind of looks like a mesh over their face. And it's usually blue. That's just the way they wear it in Afghanistan. The way they are is put on them in Afghanistan. And in... Saudi Arabia, it would be black and it doesn't even show the eyes, covers the eyes as well. Um, Somewhere in Iran, then, you know, the eyes would be showing. So it's different ways of wearing it. Um, But essentially, the whole covering up of women is all called hijab. Um, But generally, when you hear the term hijab, people are referencing the the one that covers everything except for the face and hands only because that's the more common way of hijab being worn. But the other ways of it covering the face and hands as well in in many different styles and colors are also called hijab, but they're given different names just to differentiate them because they cover more than just your normal hijab. I don't don't know if that's making sense. (laughs) No, that's that's very clear. So I want to talk about the dimensions of this in the West, in in immigrant Muslim communities uh, versus in Muslim majority countries. Um, and I also want to talk about the way hijab has almost been. Well, I don't think it's almost in, in a lot of corners. Intersectional feminism has been fetishized almost like so that's I, I want to kind of get to that. But uh on the way to that, let's talk about your background. You uh, grew up in Canada, mostly. Uh, your your mother was from Egypt. I believe your father was Palestinian. So so tell us your story. You you have a wonderful book about this called Unveiled. So you don't have to uh, you don't have to recite the whole book. People should should read it. But um, tell us sort of how you got to this point uh, where you became a human rights activist. Okay. Um... So, yeah. So as I mentioned, I was put in hijab at the age of nine. I went to Islamic schools. I lived a very separate life from the rest of Canadian society. So even though I was born and raised in Canada, I lived in a bubble separate from everybody else. So I think the most common example of that that your listeners might be familiar with are um, like Hasidic Jews in New York or uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, they kind of have this, they all 
congregate together. They, they, they usually work together, live together, socialize together, separate from the, the rest of society. So it's not a physical separation, but you do feel completely separate from everybody else. And so I grew up like that. And of course, I was not happy about it <laughs> because it, it, when I was when I was younger, when I was about five or six years old, um, is when everything changed because that's when my mother married a man who made her become much more religious. She became a religious zealot when I was around five or six years old. So I had the memory of the years before that when I got to play with my non-Muslim friends and I got to ride a bike and I got to go swimming and all that stuff. So when my life changed after that and everything became haram, everything was forbidden, music is haram, everything is haram. So I was always hoping things would bounce back. And they never did. Um, and eventually I was forced into a marriage with a man who my family felt, quote, was strong enough to control me. So they chose a man who was a um, a member of Al-Qaeda. So he's a terrorist that was in Afghanistan before coming to Canada with Bin okay. Laden. Okay, let's, before we get to that, I'm curious, mm -hmm. and I think this is germane, you were born in what year? How old are you 1974. Okay, so you were born in 1974. Your mother was born in what year? 1946. Okay, so, and she grew up in, in Egypt, in Cairo? Yes, exactly. Okay, it's it's notable that, so she was secular. She grew up in a secular family. You talk in the book about how there are photographs of her in miniskirts and go-go boots. She was having a normal life of a teenager, of a, of a young woman. So what happened exactly? Was there, was there a sort of, was her sort of change of heart um, aligning with political shifts or was it almost entirely guided by her personal experience? It was both of those things. So the whole world or the whole Islamic world started to become a lot more religious in the 80s. And it, it was a result of an anti-Western sentiment. So it was a pro-Islamic anti-Western um, push. And that was all happening. But also in her personal life, what had happened was my, her and my dad had split up and she was left with three children. And she was in a country that she wasn't familiar with because they had actually been married and living together in San Francisco. They weren't in Canada very long before their marriage fell apart. So she wasn't really familiar with the community in, in Vancouver. And so she went to the mosque because she thought, well, that's where I'll find a support system. And unfortunately, that's where she found this man who offered to take her on as his second wife, even though he was already married and he already had three children. He took her on and her three kids on. Um, in Islam, a man can have up to four wives. So she became his, his second wife. And he was, both of them together, um, he was, of course, the spearheading it, but they were following the regular shift of of muslims becoming much much more radicalized and that was very apparent in the islamic school that i attended for example 
in the first years, when I first started attending there, our imam was from India and he was super relaxed and, you know, not super relaxed. Still, the women went into the mosque from the back door and the men went from the front door and things like that. But it was not nearly as bad as when the Saudi money came in and he was replaced by an Egyptian imam whose wife wore naqab. So naqab is a is a is like this symbol for extremist, you know, person. Like not not necessarily person. It's extremist clothing, I should say. And so, um, whereas before in our mosque, the there was there was more of a it was more of a relaxed, comfortable atmosphere. But after the Saudi Arabian money came in there were many more demands put on us. And when the leader of the community is dressed in his thobe the way he was, and his wife is dressed in naqab the way she was, it kind of pulls everybody in that direction. And of course, the khutbahs, the sermons that he's going to be giving are going to be much more radicalized, very different from our Indian imam, who was very peace, love, hippie. He didn't even really speak Arabic. He didn't even really know the Quran very well. But of course, our our imam from Egypt really did. And so it became, you know, very quickly, things changed and became much more radicalized. It was very clear to everybody. It caused a big rift in the community and a big shift. Um, so I remember you- it happening. When you say the Saudi money coming in, was that something that was happening in a lot of mosques uh, oh, throughout yes. North America. So so tell us that, because I think people don't really understand. It seems like, um, you know, all of a sudden, maybe 30 years ago, our perceptions of Islam and Muslim communities started to change insofar as we had perceptions at all, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. So can you just talk a little bit about what the political trajectory was and how this all sort of uh, mushroomed into the the cultural um, manifestations that you had to contend with. Yeah, so there were a, f- a few different things happening around that time, but a, a, one of the biggest, most important things that was happening was the war in Afghanistan. So when the Mujahideen were fighting against the Russians with the aid of the Americans. And they beat out the Russians. They felt very empowered, like, oh, look at us. We can do anything. And then after that, um, really what happened was bin Laden felt like we have proven ourselves that we are so strong and powerful and we were able to defeat the Russians. So, of course, the Americans are going to want to... um, you know, continue allying with us. And, and they wanted to, he said, you you can get, he went to Saudi Arabia and he said, you can get rid of all of your American military. You don't need it there anymore because we'll protect you. And Saudi Arabia was like, nah, thanks. We're going to keep our U S military here. And basically what happened was he felt (laughs) slighted um, bin Laden. You're talking bin about Laden Osama bin slighted. Laden himself. Yeah. Okay. And he's he's in Afghanistan. He is Saudi. That is a Saudi family. Correct. Yes. Um, but but this is, you know, 
this is just leading up to 9-11. So that's just like that's but what had happened, there were a lot of shifts happening at that time. There were towards more radicalized Islam. And one of the reasons for that was the Muslim Brotherhood. So they are a group led by Hassan al-Banna, who, you know, the Islamic Empire used to be in Europe. And they've always wanted to get back to those days again of when Islam was in Spain and it was spreading into the rest of the world. But of course, they could not do that the same way they did the first time around. They couldn't use swords. So they thought, well, this time we'll use diplomacy. So they have, they decided to spread through Islamism. So it's an ideology of spreading Islam, but without using violence. So they are, as opposed to the jihadis who also want to spread Islam, jihadis are willing to use violence. Islamists generally, not always, um, don't want to use violence. But of course, they believe that once they become powerful enough, then they will use violence. So, you know, if you read Ayan Hirsi-Ali's book, Infidel, her life, as mine was happening in Canada, hers was happening in Somalia, but it was exactly the same sort of thing, where the Muslim Brotherhood come in and they just start teaching classes. They start giving a lot of charity. They start um, having a lot of like halakas, so these kind of like youth groups where you are indoctrinating the kids into this new ideology of spreading Islam through using political means. And in a lot of ways, those kids are a lot more radicalized than their parents were. So my mom is an example of that. And then, you know, of course, I became even more radicalized than she was because from me, from birth or not even birth, I guess, from the age of five or six, all of these ideas were being put into my head, whereas for her, it wasn't until she was an adult. So the idea was to just get the Muslim ummah to have a caliphate, to have a united front against the non-Muslims. So you see the enemies as the West the Jews, the non-Muslims. So it's us versus them. They hate us. We hate them back. They want to kill us. We want to kill them back. And um, those ideas that I'm talking about now, all of this us and them fighting stuff, my mom didn't hear that when she was growing up. When she was growing up, they wanted to be secular. Um, They laughed at the idea of forcing hijab on women, but because of this anti-Western sentiment, which was also very common all over Syria and Iraq and um, obviously uh, Saddam Hussein was a huge example of that or Gaddafi in Libya. So your choices really were to support the West, the enemies, the, the, the non-believers or to support the Muslims, the Ummah, your brotherhood, your family, your friends. And so people chose to support Islam. 
And uh, Iran, my gosh, Iran is the biggest example of that. So they were the ones who started it all, actually, 40 years ago with the Islamic regime. And that actually caused a lot of the Sunni countries, especially Saudi Arabia, to panic because they felt like, oh, my gosh, we really don't want Shia Islam to become more popular than Sunni Islam. We have to do something about that. And so that's why they started throwing money at building mosques and schools and sending all sorts of books all over North America and Europe to try and get um, the the Sunni mentality into people's minds so that they could counter the the Shia Islam. Okay. The reason I wanted you to go through through all of this is because I think, you know, this notion of Islamophobia now, this idea that we cannot criticize um, any sort of human rights violations or extremist practices among Muslims because it's colonialist, it's bigoted, racist, etc. I, I think people m- think that they're criticizing like an ancient tradition or an ancient religion. And what they're actually criticizing is extremism that's arisen over the last 30 years, maybe. Is yes. that Am I Absolutely correct. Correctly? Yes. Okay. That is definitely putting it correctly. Yeah. And so we try to use the words Muslim versus Islamist to try and show the difference. So these people that I'm talking about that are trying to spread Islam using political means or even through uh, violence, we call them Islamists, even though they are Muslims, but we call them Islamists just to separate them from your other Muslims who are not interested in doing anything other than just living their lives peacefully. Right. So at this point, say in in the West or maybe even just North America, that might be easier. Like what percentage, you don't have to give me numbers, but, you know, people who are Muslim, are, are most of them just your sort of ordinary, like, you know, secular or secular adjacent sort of Muslims, how pervasive is this kind of, um, I don't, you know, radicalism or extremism, like uh, how much of a presence is it at this point? So your average regular ordinary Muslim would never be a secularist. But as far as the extremists, well, not never, very rarely be a secularist. When we talk about the Islamists, the numbers are 20 to 25% of Muslims. So, uh, and those numbers are coming from places like in Egypt when they had a, um, a, a presidential election. And th- so they're, they're going by the numbers of who voted for the, the Islamist right. president. Um, and then, of course, not just Egypt, but, you know, they're, They've gone around and done studies and they show it shows that it's around 20, 25 percent. And this is coming from research that's been quoted by the Quilliam Foundation, which is run by Majid Nawaz, who used to be an Islamist. He was a member of Hezbollah Tahrir and he was trying to get um, nuclear bombs. Um, But anyway, so he is the one who's conducting this kind of research. And even when when he was talking about the 20 to 25 percent number, he was saying there's it's really hard for us to be exact but he thinks it's somewhere around there, judging by all of the research they've done. So those are the people who are really wanting to spread Islam across the globe. They want every single person to submit to the religion. Now, when you talk about your regular average everyday Muslim, they don't necessarily want to do that, but they will more likely than not 
be more supportive of Muslims than non-Muslims or they, they, they won't. There are Muslims who are liberal, open-minded, free-thinking secularists, but they are called Muslim reformers and they are a very small group. They're growing. So magic even, 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 even in the U.S., even even in the U.S., even in North America. Oh, yes. Okay. In fact, more, way more in North America because they're freer to do that. They're much freer in North America, much freer in the U.K., so they can express their desire to reform their religion and bring it up to date. Now, just the other day, I saw a uh, an imam in Saudi Arabia expressing these views on Saudi Arabian television, talking about how we need to bring Islam to this century and we can no longer, you know, use these draconian methods that have worked for us up until now. So the ideas are all in those countries as well. But obviously in the West, people are much more able to express their ideas much more freely without fear of, of consequences. Okay, um, sorry. So that's that's actually what I meant. So so mm-hmm. in but I'm just trying to get a hold of a, a handle on like how many Muslims in the West would be like participating in in things that we just abhor. I mean, the kinds of the kinds of um, the kinds of situations you grew up with. And I want to talk about what went on in your household, um, you know, suppression of, of, you know, just forcing you to wear a hijab, um, just real, real abuse. Um, and then I want to get in later. I don't know if this is something that that you dealt with yourself, but you know, issues like like female genital mutilation, honor killings, this sort of thing. Like, how common is that in the West? That's what I want to try to understand. Those things are, even if it's just one case, it's one case too many. So these are those these are vicious things that are happening to people. So. You know, when you're talking about a population of two billion people, even if I said, "Well, it's one percent, Megan," it's still well, that's, it's that's still, a lot. Yes, it's still too many, right? So, unfortunately, when you these are things like honor violence or honor killing, for example, it is so difficult for us to get a real number to express how widespread these problems are, because quite often we're told the girl ran away or right. she got sick and died, or she fell from the third story balcony, or, you know, whatever, there are all sorts of stories are told all the time. Um, so we can't get a real number. But, you know, there's a one documentary that I will, well, there's two documentaries I'm going to recommend. One is called Honor Diaries, which um, talks all about honor violence. And Ayan Hirsi is one of the speakers in that documentary. And another one is called Benaz, A Love Story. And that's available on YouTube. And that is a documentary that was made by Dia Khan, who is a Muslim woman. Her family is from Pakistan. And she made this documentary about this young woman named Benaz, who is of Iraqi descent. And she went to the police on five different occasions, asking for help, telling them her father was planning to kill her, and they never believed her until they finally found her body chopped up, stuffed in a suitcase, buried in her family's backyard. So, you know, at the end of that documentary, they just flash pictures of different girls with their names. And you you feel so 
horrified and disgusted. And, and those girls were only in the UK. So you just know that those numbers all over, you know, Pakistan, Egypt, Somalia, Sudan, Afghanistan, you just know that those numbers are going to be way more than they would be in, a, in the UK. Right. And, and you yourself. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say that it was a, it was something that we all knew about. Like in Canada, where I grew up, there have been honor killings as well. I was familiar with them. My mom would constantly be, threaten me with, oh, I'll just, you know, take you to Egypt, kill you there. And then I'll tell everybody that you decided to stay living in Egypt. It, it would be so easy for me to do that. And she and would say that in earnest. She would say that. Absolutely. In absolutely. I was just speaking to my friend Sadia, who grew up in the UK. Um, she went through the same thing where her family were going to take her to Afghanistan and kill her off. I'm writing a book now called Forgotten Feminists. And in it, there's another young woman of Iraqi descent. Her parents took her to Iraq to get her married off or killed. You know, like you just, you, you have this, there's this constant threat. Women girls live under this constant threat of do as you're told or we're going to marry you off or kill you like you 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 just know that this is part of the this is part of reality for you this is yeah. something that could happen this isn't something that is out of the blue crazy so when Benaz went to the police and said my father's trying to kill me they thought it was crazy because it's just insane but she knew it wasn't because to her, that was her reality. So this is why speaking about honor violence and honor killings is so important. People say, oh, it's just a, it's just a killing. Why is it any different? There's no honor in murder. It's like, well, no, it is completely different because there is a huge, like a whole mindset behind it. And then there's the support of the family and the friends and the community and everybody that's going to stay quiet. And, and support the murderer because he was only standing up for his family's honor. So it's not even considered a bad thing. Well, and there's some combination of uh, lack of cultural competence and I guess just um, uh, just denial. You talk in your book about going to a teacher when you were, I don't know how old you were, maybe 12 years old or 12. That's right. So I, I want you to talk about what was going on in your home, but you went to a teacher and were totally transparent. You told him everything that was going on in your family. And it, actually, he he uh, reported it to the Canadian equivalent of Child Protective Services. And the, your family was investigated and this went through the courts. And ultimately, the judge said, well, it's not for it's not for me to judge as a judge. It's not for me to judge uh, because this is part of of your culture. So tell us what went on there. Yeah, so that was the ultimate betrayal for me because I had always been told, you know, the non-Muslims hate you, the non-Muslims will never protect you, and I never believed it. I thought, you know, well, they're just people and they're nice and they're kind and and they will protect me. Um, I believed that they would. And when the judge ruled that, it kind of... Well, it didn't kind of, it definitely validated everything that I'd been told that he essentially was saying to me, had you been born to a family who came from, you know, Germany or France or Sweden, then I would protect you. But your family happens to come from Egypt. And so 
I'm just going to have to leave you to continue to, you know, to suffer. And tell us what was going on in the house. Um, so I didn't even talk to Mr. Fabro about all of the abuse that was going on because this was your teacher. Just, yeah, Mr. Fabro was, was the teacher that you went to. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So I just had to scratch the surface and he was horrified enough to, to call child services. Um, but I had, I told him about the physical beatings, about how the man that my mom had married used to tie us up and whip us to punish us for different things, mostly for not memorizing the Quran or for missing prayers. Um, in my book, I recount one of the, um, one of the worst times that happened, which was when I, they discovered that I used the name Jasmine in one of my books instead of Yasmin. And so they felt, um, I was trying to be Westernized. I, I was preferring a non-Muslim name. And so they really wanted to drive home how horrible it is that I would do such a thing. And so I was hung up upside down in the garage and whipped. Um, and I told Mr. Fabro, my teacher, about that. And the judge knew about that. And I showed them, you know, I showed Mr. Fabro the bruises on my body, only on my arms, because I was afraid to show my skin to him, <laughs> because that is uh, a huge sin to show your skin to a man that you're not married to. And in fact, that actually came up. The The man that my mom was married to went and went to the principal of the school and said, you know, this man crossed the line. He violated, you know, Islamic uh, modesty by forcing this girl to show him her skin, take off her clothes. It was literally my arms. <laughs> I lifted my sleeves up. Um, but, you know, luckily the nothing came of that. But it's just the gall, like, you know, the absolute nerve of you are in trouble because you beat up a little girl and you're going to come in there and say, yeah, well, you shouldn't have been looking at her. She should have been covered up. So, and yeah. you know, your, your case, it's, it's kind of, it's interesting because your mother, it's, she's a convert. I mean, part mm -hmm. of her zealotry she's born is again. that she's, yeah. she's a convert. So in a way, what was going on with her and your family is a microcosm of this larger, uh, th these transformations within Islam geopolitically, right? Like sort of the whole, the whole, uh, all of Islam became a kind of convert and it's zealotry yes, yeah. arose from there. I just want to, she wasn't a, a convert per se, but she was a born again Muslim. Okay. So she, that, that's, she was yeah, raised I'm using Muslim. That but, euphemistically, yeah. yes. But she never really, like, yeah, she never really practiced. Her best friend was Christian. When she was growing up, she got to live her life. But yes, you're absolutely correct. The way that she became more zealous fell in line exactly with the whole ummah becoming more zealous at that time. And how much of it do you think was due to? 
her personal circumstances, it seems, you know, I don't know, but it seems like there was some mental illness going on, you know, a lot of mental health struggles. Like, you know, I'm sure you've had people say to you, well, the abuse you're describing, how much of that is directly related to Islam and how much of it is just like a completely dysfunctional household? Like, how do you answer that question? Yes, I do get that question a lot. And the thing is, is that when anything was being done to me, it was always justified by the religion. So my mom was a student of Al-Azhar University. She was, yes, she went through periods of depression, but she was not a mentally ill woman. She was doing a master's degree in Islamic theology. Like she was the head of the Islamic studies department at the Islamic school. She really, really believed this stuff. And she really felt, I mean, when she saw me without my hijab on for the first time in public, and when she threatened to kill me at that time, it wasn't, it was completely devoid of emotion. It was just, this is what needs to be done. You must be killed because if you've taken off your hijab, the next step is that you are going to leave the religion. And so I need to kill you before that happens. So that what I'm expressing to you right there, like that full on indoctrination to the, yeah. to the point that you lose your humanity. That is very, 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 very common. So this is part of the reason why I'm writing the book, Forgotten Feminists, is because I want to tell the stories of so many other different women who have been through situations similar to mine, and in most cases, way worse than mine, because I want to show that the fact that I was in Canada protected me in so many ways, but the stories that are coming out of other countries like Saudi Arabia, for example, or Somalia, then that you wouldn't have the protection of the law enforcement or of society. So everybody would be right. in agreement with these vicious things that are happening. Um, right. So, yeah, so there's, it's just the, it's not that it was my mom. It's that she was following an ideology that told her this is the right thing to do. So it's 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 like jihadis. It's like my the man that they forced me to marry. He did not one day say, "Hey, I want to go and just murder people. I want to be a terrorist." No, he was told at, you know, 14 years old that in order to go to heaven and be the best of Allah's creations and to reach a level of heaven that nobody but the prophets get to enjoy. You know, they gave him like this superhero status. If you murder the infidels, if you do terrorism in Allah's name, if you spread Islam. So it's, it's not that these people are bad people. It's that they are poisoned by a very bad ideology. Yeah. And my mom was poisoned by the same ideology that had, was poisoned. So many other moms were poisoned with the same ideology. And that's why so many other girls and women have had the exact same experiences that I've had in, in Western countries, as well as in non-Western countries. Hi there. My name is Paul Shirley. 
I'm a former professional basketball player turned writer and also the founder of a thing called The Process. I'm honored to have a few seconds within Megan's podcast to tell you what we do at The Process. If you're anything like most people, you're scattered, overstimulated, and frustrated by your inability to concentrate for long periods of time. Texts, emails, social media, and somehow you're expected to make progress at your job and on your passion projects. It's a lot. This is where the process comes in. I believe that everything worth doing requires a process to do it, a set of habits and routines that allow you to access sustained periods of deep work. Through virtual co-working and productivity coaching, that's what we do at the process. We help people like you learn to be productive, not busy. And here's the best part. You won't be doing this alone. Inside our platform, you'll meet people from all over the world, people who are dealing with the same frustrations you are, and people who want the same things you do, structure, accountability, community, and most of all, progress on the projects most important to you. We'd love to have you. To learn more, come see us at createyourprocess.com. I want to talk about this marriage. It's ironic. Uh, I don't know if that's really an appropriate word, but you know, you were in Egypt when you were younger and you had they had wanted you to marry somebody there. There was mm-hmm. an attempt at an arranged marriage with a guy in Egypt who was actually, was he a cousin? Like he was actually yes. like a kind of a nice guy. Uh, yes. You just didn't want to marry him. Uh, yeah. And then you return to to the West and there's another arranged marriage and this guy ends up being uh, a Not terrorist. Yeah. So tell us um, what, how that, how that played out. Yeah. So I went to Egypt on a family vacation and um, we were supposed to be leaving at like three o'clock in the morning to get on, to get the taxis to the airport. But when I woke up, my family was already gone. They'd all left. Um, My mom decided that she wanted to leave me in Egypt so I could be in an Islamic society so that I could get straightened out. But she didn't want to <sighs> confront me about it because then she knew I wouldn't go to sleep. And so she she did it like that. And so I was in Egypt for two years before I was finally able to make my way back home again. And at that point, my mom felt like this girl is slippery. We need to find something find some way to control her. And so that's why they chose to marry me off to this member of Al-Qaeda. Because they oh, this, felt was back, was sorry, this was back when you were in, this is back when you were in Canada. Yes, correct. So okay. I made and it back to Canada. This time? So I was 19 when I did the Islamic marriage. So the Islamic marriage is, I think in Judaism, they have a similar thing where it's, uh, you're 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 married in the eyes of a law, but you're not legally married, and so it's kind of like an engagement period. But men and women can't be in the same room if they're not married. So therefore, it's like a pre-marriage. Okay, so you're so you're married in the eyes of religious law, yes, effectively. Correct. And are you living yeah. together? Are you no? Do you no. have a household together? Okay. No. So when you're married under religious, when you do this um, tab, you have, you do everything except for basically consummating the marriage. So you, you don't live together, you don't sleep together, but you can get to know each other basically. But 
he's your husband. So he that's when the niqab was put on me, for example. That's when it was demanded, okay, you have to cover your face. Here's the niqab. I got you from Saudi Arabia. Here are the thick black socks. Here's the here are the gloves. And um so that all started when I was 19. And by the time I was um 20, that's when we got legally married. And then I had my daughter shortly thereafter. Okay. And that's the point where you started to have an awakening because you were, I I think just so we understand your timeline, your rebellious kid, uh, was it up until the point uh, where, where the judge said, we're not going to help you. Is that when you kind of just shut down and decided to, um, to kind of do as you were told or were you kind of. That was, yes, definitely. So my life, which I didn't realize until I started writing this book, was uh, basically a series of me standing up and then getting my knees cut off by something, you know, mm-hmm. usually my mom, and then staying down for a bit before I get back up again. And yes, the judge ruling that I had to just endure definitely kept me down for a long time. And, you know, when we say rebellious kid. Yeah, yeah I don't mean that feisty. No, you were you're like, right, you know. though. I was considered a rebellious kid, but it, it's just in context. It's 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 laughable because right. all I did was ask questions like I would say things like, what do you mean he was 53 years old when he married a six year old girl? And then. My mom would get mad at me and say, who are you to question the prophet of Allah? He didn't do anything. He didn't do anything until she was nine years old when she was a grown adult. And I'm like, what? How is she a grown adult at nine years old? And the fact that I would question these things, get upset about these things, push back about these things was in my mom's view, I had the devil in me was questioning these things. The devil in me was whispering these um these doubts all the time and so so that's that's what they consider to be rebellious was that i just had um i had too many questions and i wasn't i i wasn't satisfied with just being told that's the way it is there's no reason for it and do you think she saw her own circumstances as a kind of punishment for having been secular? Yes, 100%. 100%. And she would talk about that. She would say that. She would say, you know, um, I I did, I made a lot of mistakes. I didn't wear hijab. I was, um, you know, whatever. She lived her life the way, like a, a regular person would. But she considered that the reason why my dad left her and the reason why she ended up with three kids all alone, depressed, and all of these horrible things happened to her was because she wasn't following the religion properly. So if she just followed the religion properly, everything will be wonderful and rainbows and butterflies. And so she wanted me to do the same because she wanted me to have a a happy, good, easy life. Mm -hmm. So just obey. So she was scared for you almost. It sounds like. Yes. Yeah. She was scared for me and um, she wanted us to have a better, like she wanted us to be better Muslims. She wanted us to not make the same mistakes that she had made. Um, 
yeah, she really, really believed that this was the path to heaven and any other path was hell. And so, yeah, she, she wanted me to be controlled because she didn't want me to go astray. She didn't want me to, to lose my faith in the religion. Right. So how did, uh, your husband's involvement with Al-Qaeda come to light? So my mom ended up having an emergency. She was um, coughing up blood and blood was coming out of her nose and she couldn't breathe. And so I called 911. And this was the first time in our whole marriage that I'd ever left the house without him. But um, when the ambulance came, I was really worried. Like, should I leave the house without him? Am I going to get in trouble for that? Then I thought, well, he should, you know, hopefully he'll understand that this was an emergency. And so I got in the ambulance with my mom and we went to the hospital. I had my little daughter with me at the time. And I got into the waiting room and I was approached by a man and a woman. And they said that they were from CSIS, which are the Canadian Intelligence Agency. And they told me who I was married to. And they showed me all sorts of pictures and asked me all sorts of questions. Now, I knew he was in Afghanistan before I married him because he, um, which I didn't know this part. They told me this part, that he was arrested when he came into Canada because he came in with a fake Saudi Arabian passport. So he's Egyptian coming from Afghanistan with a fake Saudi Arabian passport. He comes into the country. They arrest him. He is detained for a little while, but then the best lawyer that we had in the city gets paid a retainer. The money came from this guy in California who got the money from Bin Laden. This has all been traced now. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to you like now we know all this. I didn't know all this at the time. Um, paid his bail and paid for his lawyer. and. At the end of it, he ended up getting refugee status. And so they told me that the man that I was married to came to Canada from Afghanistan and he was not there as my mom had told me. He was not there driving a ambulance. Um, I, they told me he worked for the Red Crescent, which is like the Red Cross, but heaven forbid it be a cross. So it's a crescent. Um, and the truth was he was training kids with how to use um, arms and that he was involved in terrorism. Now, I didn't, it didn't seem that far-fetched. Like, I wasn't like, whoa, this is crazy. No way. Like, yeah, I believed it. What it was, was not his job difficult in Canada? What, what was Nothing. he doing? He drove, he, um, he delivered fish or something. Like, it was, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, he worked for a company called Seven Days Seafood or something, and he delivered. Were you were you fish. poor? Because yes, presumably yeah. you weren't working. You were living no. in a house or an apartment near your mother in the same community. Uh, initially, we were. Um, so he was getting. Initially, we were living in the same building, but then he ended up getting. Um, housing, BC housing. So it's uh, basically social housing. And that's where we moved into. And my mom moved in with us. So we were all living together when my daughter was born. Okay. So yes, um, it's... it's. So how did these people find you at the hospital? 
I don't understand. This. So this is the thing. Like we, I suspect now that he had been. So the FBI knew of him when he came into Canada. And so I, when I say we, I'm talking about like the journalists and the other people that have learned about the research, this man, because I'm learning all of this stuff after the fact. Um, so when he was allowed to go into enter Canada, they allowed him in, but they kept an eye on him. And so I think that the house was being surveilled. Definitely our phones were. And I think that's how they knew that they could trust me because I called 911 a few times because he would be um, physically abusive. And, and did the police come at that time? What would happen when you called 911? The police would come and then I would get too scared because I have learned to forgive myself over this. But um, you really feel like unless the, the, he's going to go in prison for life, the fact that I have called the cops on him is going to be way worse for me than if I just accept whatever abuse I'm taking right now. So I, I didn't want him to be arrested for like a night or two and then come back and get his revenge. So I would always say I changed my mind. Okay. So they were surveilling the house. You were approached in the hospital by um, authorities. Was he arrested at that time? What happened next? No, no, he wasn't arrested. Um, but it gave me more desire to leave the relationship, which was something obviously that I wanted to get out before. But I felt like, oh, now I have. So this is the thing. So when he first started beating me up, which was like a week into the marriage, and I went to my mom and I said, you know, he's beating me up. This can't be. You can't leave your daughter married to this man who's who's going to beat her up like you help me to get out of this house. And she said, um, you've only been married a short while. If he divorces you now, then everybody in the community will think that he divorced you because you're not a virgin. And so you have to stay with him a little while longer so that it doesn't look bad. And so I said, okay, fine, but I'm not letting him near me because I don't want to end up getting pregnant and getting stuck in this marriage. And then she said, well, you don't have a choice in that. If he wants you, then you have to let him have you because you're his wife and the angels will curse you till morning. So I was told I need to accept him beating me because I'm his wife and I'm his property. According to the Quran, I'm told that I'm his wife, so I need to, and he, I'm his property, so I need to accept him raping me whenever he feels like it because it's it, hadith. And so I felt completely trapped. So when CSIS came and told me that he was a terrorist, I thought, oh my gosh, this is my ticket. I can go to my mom and say, he's actually a terrorist. Now will you help me get out of this marriage? But when I told her, she wasn't surprised. And she already knew. And so that's when I started to realize like, okay, I can't turn to my mom for help to get me away from this man. I have to get away from him and away from her. And of course, 
somebody with, you know, a high school education. This is way before there was like, you know, Facebook or iPhones. So I didn't have any connections with anybody. All ties had been severed in those two years that I was in Egypt. Um, so the thought of having a nine month old baby and like going off into the world on my own was, you know, it felt like an insurmountable obstacle. But when they started talking about taking my daughter to Egypt to get FGM performed on her, I knew that I, they would, they would do that to her as an infant. No, no. So that's, he was, he was saying, when are we going to take her to Egypt to get this done to her? And then my mom said, oh, no, no, we don't do that now. We wait until she's a little bit older. We have to wait until she's like six or seven years old, and then we'll take her to Egypt and get it done. And then I realized what they were talking about, because, of course, they didn't use the word FGM. They used the Arabic word for it, so I didn't know what they were talking about initially. And um, and then I was like, well, that gives me five to six years before I have to get out of this marriage and save my daughter. Like That's, that's my window of opportunity. So, um, I didn't have a clear idea of how I was going to do it, how I was going to get away from both of these people, but I was in a state of panic. Like I had to get out. And in my book, I document how I did that. It was of course, um, a very long convoluted, difficult process, but it was also very, just by the skin of my teeth. It was, it was almost, you know, it, I I found out that I was pregnant a second time. And so I felt like, well, now there's no reason to fight. Like now I'm not going to be, I can't run away with two children on my own. So I have to just at this point submit and go to Afghanistan or he wanted to go to Peshawar, which is Northern Pakistan. Um, I have to just submit like, this is it. This is my life now. I am a jihadi wife and I just have to accept it. And then when I went for the ultrasound, I found out that the baby didn't have a heartbeat. And so my first initial response was, I did this because I didn't want this baby. And so therefore, I killed it with my thoughts. I completely wasn't thinking about the fact that he was beating me up, had kicked me down the stairs, was kicking my back, that I could barely sit. You know, no, I thought it was my fault because I willed this child out of existence. Um, but then my next thought was, well, I need to save the child that is alive. And so when the, um, the nurse told me, we're going to put you under general anesthetic. So you're going to have to have somebody drive you home and somebody take, you know, help you to take care of your baby for a while because you're going to be groggy in and out. And you're going to be in pain because of the DNC and, and things like that. So I told him that I needed to go stay with my mom for a week so that my mom could help me with the baby because I knew he would never want to help me with the baby. And I also knew that getting away from my mom would be easier than getting away from him. And so when I was in my mom's house or in her apartment, uh, she got up to go to work the next morning. As I mentioned, she taught at the Islamic school. And I went through the yellow pages and through lawyer referral, which is a program we have where you can 
there's certain lawyers that will let you have the half an hour consultation for free. And I found the closest one that was a woman um, so that I could I feel more comfortable with her because, of course, I wouldn't be speaking to any males at that time. And um, I contacted a lawyer, got on the bus with my daughter, and I felt like I only had a half an hour and I had to say everything. And then I had to get home again before my mom came back from school. And the appointment was at one and my mom would be finished school at like 3.30. And so I was very panicked that I had to get back on time. And I told her everything. And I said, I need a restraining order and I need a divorce and I need full custody. And you can't contact me because there were no cell phones at this time. So she would have been calling my mom's apartment and I didn't want my mom to know what I'd done. And she did everything. She did everything. Um, didn't charge me a dime. She's somebody who I have since gone and thanked. And um, I've been in contact with her because she was really um, my guardian angel at the time. Like she just, she took care of everything. And I went back to my mom's place and I just, I didn't know. I didn't know anything. I didn't know if it worked. I didn't know if there was more information that she needed. I didn't know if it was enough. And then a few days later, he came to my mom's apartment and he was just screaming in Arabic. He was yelling, give me back my wife. And he's yelling it in Arabic. He's yelling it in English. And, you know, he's a six foot four Arab man yelling in Arabic. So nobody was letting him into the building. Thank goodness. Um, and. Uh, so I knew he'd been served with the divorce papers and um, that's when my mom realized what I'd done as well. But she also realized like this train was out of the station. There was nothing more she could do. The cops were in her apartment. They were talking to me about the restraining order and explaining to me how it works. And, you know, this was all out of her control now. And so her response was to try and get me married again as soon as possible. And she was. Yeah. Yeah. And she was selling it to me like, oh, you're used now. You know, you're not a virgin anymore and you have a daughter, but, but we'll find you somebody. We'll find you somebody who will take you on. And of course, there was no way I was going to go through that again. I just got out of it. And she's like, no, 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 we'll find you a nice one this time. Um, and I did actually meet a couple of men that she brought while I was trying to figure out how I was going to get out. Um, and then you know, eventually she went to Florida to visit my sister. And then that's when I escaped with my daughter, yada, yada. It's all in the book. It's just yes. all yeah. sorts of, it, it's not, <laughs> it was not easy. Um, and this is in Canada. So this is why my organization, Free Hearts, Free Minds, supports women like me and men um, who are in these situations in Muslim majority countries, like if it was that difficult for me in a country as free as Canada, just imagine what it would be like for a woman in Saudi Arabia, for example. Yeah, well, it's it's an extraordinary story, and you tell it beautifully in the book. I wanted to hear you tell it here. How do you feel when you hear Westerners, and particularly Western feminists, just sort of refuse to engage with this kind of kind of thing? Uh, you know, it's the rise of the intersectional framework 
means that feminists in the West, or at least those who have you know real investment in critical race theory, are so loath to criticize uh, any culture that's not a Western culture that this is just left untouched and and more so now than in the mid to late eighties, which is when this judge would have made this ruling. I mean, I'm assuming the judge was not acting out of critical race theory. <laughs> like it was some other sort of instinct. Yes. Um, it feels, it, it hurts. It's very painful. It feels like a, like a, a real betrayal. I, you know, Feminism was what saved me. Liberalism is what saved me. These values, these ideas were so important to me. It was, I had to risk my life to be able to live by these values. And to have fellow feminists and fellow liberals refuse to acknowledge or engage with, you know, these traumatic situations that I'm talking to you about is so painful. I mean, they will go on and on about how we need to listen to women's authentic stories. We need to let women tell stories with their voices. Uh, We need to uh, believe women. But then when women like me start to speak out, it's like, no, 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 not you though. You don't count. You're not included in this. You spoke with Sam Harris uh, about this and, and you two talked about how, you know, when there are cases of religious extremists in the West, in the U.S., cults, religious cults, I think he mentioned uh, Warren Jeffs, uh, was that the was as is this the Latter Day Saints? No, I'm forgetting Latter Day Saints, right? You know, there are cases where women and girls are taken out of compounds um, by the FBI, having been abused, having been married off. I mean, those there is no question uh, among Americans that this is a terrible crime. This person needs to go to prison uh, for a long time, if not the rest of his life. We don't see that with Islam. Is it? I'm just. I don't know how to ask this without just sounding really crude. Is it because we're talking about brown people and yeah, white people that's are how it feels to criticize anything? That's how it feels. Yeah. It is. It yeah. is. It is the most dehumanizing thing. These are from people that like to pretend that they are so anti-racist, and but through their actions, they're actually being so viciously racist. By acknowledging that these girls are victims of, you know, religious misogyny, the LDS girls, for example, but then looking at girls and women in Afghanistan and saying, well, no, that's their choice. They want to dress like that. That's empowering. That's feminism. (laughs) You know, like at the, at the, the liberal feminist march in 2016 or 2017, where they had a huge poster of a woman in a hijab at a women's march, like one of the most anti-women Oh, well, this is, is this, um, Linda, are you talking about exactly. Linda Sarsour? Yes. Yeah. So, right. This is, I mean, it's almost become 
a meme. It's like yeah. a, the the hijab has become the sort of signifier for intersectionality. Yeah, but those same people would in no way ever support purity culture or, you know, fundamentalism, like modesty culture like that, if it's coming from a Christian perspective, then they would get it. They would understand it right away. And they'd say, no, that's harmful. That's toxic. But when it's happening to brown women, it's like, nah, but now it's empowering and now it's feminist. Like all of a sudden they completely don't understand rape culture. All of a sudden they have completely no concept of of misogyny it does it, they don't get it anymore you know like it, it, and sometimes it's done in the most pure way like it's so it's so clear that the, the the hypocrisy like let me just give you the example of like Miley Cyrus you know she does all of these um free the nipple campaigns where she's all about free the nipple yet at the same time <laughs> she will support the hijab and she'll support Barbie you know, having a little hijab for Barbie. And it's, it's just this weird, uh, they think of us as an other, really, that's what it comes down to. They don't consider us to be women like them. She wants her freedom. She wants to be able to free herself to the point that she's freeing her nipples. But she doesn't think that other women might also want that as well. No, these brown women from these Eastern countries, they get empowered when they support, you know, modesty culture and purity culture, they, they love subjugating themselves. That's yeah, how they feel empowered. Like, it, do you think that we're a different species? Or do they even think it through that much? I don't, I think it's almost like a fashion. Like they just yeah. see this as, well, but it's what frustrates me too. Like I can understand on an intellectual level Somebody, you know, having gone through a liberal arts college or, you know, you know, steeped in intersectional theory and saying, okay, well, it's none of our business what happens in these other countries. We don't want to be imperialist and we're not going to police what people do in Somalia and Egypt and the Middle East. But if you're in the United States, if you are in Canada, if you're in the West and you are subjecting other people people in your family, your children to barbaric practices that are against the law that completely violate, you know, any sort of human rights. Uh, I, I just, how, how is that just allowed? Like, is, and I, I don't even understand how like immigration uh, authorities don't police this more yeah. conscientiously. I think there's a very big difference between trying to police what happens in other countries and to other people, but all, and having a judgment about what's happening in other countries to other people, mm. you know, like you you don't have to be so dishonest about it where you all of a sudden start supporting something so vicious, something that gets women imprisoned and gets women killed and gets women attacked with acid and gets women harassed. You don't have to start pretending that it's a really empowering, cool feminist statement and all of a sudden we're going to put it on the cover of Sports Illustrated and put it on the cover of magazines and uh, put it in advertisements and put a Nike swoosh on it and celebrate it as if it's something to be celebrated. You know, now you've crossed a line. There's a very big difference between saying that's their business and they're doing it over there and I can't say anything about it, although I disagree with it, and saying that's what they're doing over there. And we're going to celebrate it here in our free Western culture. You know what they're doing? Actually, they're treating uh, they're treating Islam 
as if it's a race, right? They're treating it as it's an, a set of immutable characteristics. So it's like, if we're going to have an advertisement, we're going to have, um, you know, a black person, uh, a, a Latina, um, an Asian person, a white person, and somebody in hijab. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. like no, one of these correct. is not like the other. Yes. Yeah. But, I no, mean, it's almost like so a shorthand. True. Yeah. Let's talk about female FGM for a second here, female genital mutilation. You know, there are women's studies now, gender studies, whatever. I, I have heard of like, uh, you know, graduate students, young women uh, say, well, we no longer call it FGM. These are women in the U.S. It's now called cutting uh, because FGM is is judgmental. How prevalent is it in the West? Um, is this going on behind closed doors? It's and definitely going on behind away? closed doors. Yeah. And, and it's, again, it's one of those things where the numbers are, are difficult to get for the West because it is done. It has to be done secretly here because you could, you know, you could get in trouble for it. And it, it's now been criminalized in the U S and in the UK. I mean, it's criminalized in Egypt, but close to 90% of women have had it done to, or right. girls what does have that had even it done mean? to them. What it's, does that it's even mean? It's not like they're exactly. being taken to a doctor, right? It's usually yes. an elder. It's usually a woman, like an elder, yes. elder yep. woman. Yes. Yep. So it's, yep. you're held down by your mom and your aunt or your sister or your cousin. Like these are people you trust. Oh my God. These are people you trust, people that you love. They're the ones that are holding you down as somebody comes and um, takes a razor to you without, you know, any proper anesthetic or, or medical, you know, support in any way. I've read so many stories. Thankfully, this hasn't happened to me, but I've read so many stories from girls that are telling me about, you know, getting sewn shut afterwards where they're just left a little tiny hole so that they could pee from it. After it happens to them, they have to, um, they put like a pot in between their legs and then tie their legs together so that when the so that when the wounds heal, they're, it fuses in the right way. I mean, it's just the most horrific, barbaric, disgusting thing that you can possibly imagine. And it, it's, it is happening all over the world, in the Western world as well, all over the UK, all over the US, all over Can in Canada. I'm part of a, a group that is um, trying to make it criminalized in Canada as well. Um, so with what they do is what my mom and the man she forced me to marry were talking about doing with my daughter, which is taking her to Egypt, getting it done there, and then bringing her back after it's a done deal. And, uh, yeah, so there's so many, it, it's, it's hidden. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, the sort of critical inter interrogation, you know, the, 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 the intersectional interrogation of this is that somehow, I mean, I, it's you know, their I was culture. Reading, we right, can't I was judge reading it. A paper like you know, I, there's a paper. I think it was printed in the journal Nature. I believe it or not, or at least distributed by them. I don't. It's hard to tell with these studies sometimes. But you know, the World Health Organization, uh, a major player in setting the global agenda on this issue, maintains that all medically unnecessary cutting of the external female genitalia, no matter how slight, should be banned as torture and a violation of human right to bodily integrity. Um, 
However, the the WHO targets only non-Western forms of female-only genital cutting, raising concerns about gender bias and cultural imperialism. The research has, you know, and, and, and these researchers are saying that they have converged to complicate what has been called the, quote, standard tale about FGC or FGM, according to what is primarily an instrument of male dominance over female sexuality, that it's actually something much more complicated uh, and that it needs to be interrogated as such. Yeah, it's not complicated. It's um, the reason why it's causing complication is because they there are so many people that want to circumcise their boys. And they are concerned about if you if you make this is what the World Health Organization um if you make a blanket statement around cutting healthy girls' genitals for no reason, then followed closely behind that, you're going to have activists talking about, well, then why are you cutting healthy boys' genitals for no reason? And so they want to avoid making any judgment about cutting any genitals of any children because they don't want to have to deal with any pushback. That's my. That's how mm-hmm. I'm seeing it. So the woman that I see uh, in hijab and niqab walking along in Brooklyn, am, am I safe to assume that this has been done to her? Um, I don't know because it, it really, as as much as it's as much as it's common in some countries, there are other countries where it's it's just it's just not her. They just don't do it. It's not part of their um, it's not part of their culture. So although religion informs culture and cu- culture informs religion, and there are the four schools of thought in Islam. So there's some schools of thought recommend it. They say you must do it. Some schools of thought say, uh, not sorry, some recommend it, say you can, if you like, and some say you must. So it depends on which school of thought this girl's family happens to come from. And the school of thought is generally dictated by which country or culture she's from. Okay. Um, So you can assume that it's been done to her. But if let's say if she's from Somalia, then chances are it's been done to her. Yeah. Um, And Egypt is also. Egypt is. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately, uh, Egypt is up there as well. So the more. Um educated the more urban areas you you wouldn't find it as much as you would in the more rural less educated areas okay in egypt like i said it's been criminalized so there is this huge education campaign uh, for people to stop doing it to their girls but of course this is there's pushback, right? It's like, oh, why don't you want us to do it to our girls? It's because you want us to be sluts like the Western girls? No, we're going to make sure our girls stay pure and clean. And so, Well, that was actually think- a really interesting point that you raised in the book, which should be obvious, but it was sort of not, it was surprising to me, or it was just sort of revelatory. Like, you know, the, the extremism is more pronounced in immigrant communities in the West, because, yeah. you know, the, the impurities of Westerners are all around you. They're, they're right. more afraid for, for their yeah. children. But I mean, are we seeing, like, is, is it possible that there are sort of back alley genital cuttings being done? In, oh, hundred percent. New York Definitely. City. And, I mean, 
all over? Oh, yes. Yeah. In Minnesota, there was a doctor. It wasn't Minnesota. I think it was Minnesota. The Ion Hersielli Foundation was involved in uh, a huge court case that took, it was years, years in, you know, investigations and, you know, collecting all of the evidence that was needed to support um, because the, 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 anyway, so they, they finally did arrest this doctor who was performing all of these FGMs. And at the end of the day, basically it ended up becoming a, uh, a religious issue. They said that's her religious freedom to do that, but it wasn't being done on the books. Like it was being done, at least it was a doctor, I guess. Um, but quite often it's, the only reason why we were even able to detain this woman was because she was a doctor. And so she was supposedly, uh, you know, it was, it was against her oath as a doctor in America to be doing these kinds of things. You know, harm. Yeah. Yes. But if it's just some person that they brought over from Somalia to, to do this, you know, whole community of girls before she gets back on the plane to go back to Somalia, there's no way that, they're going to be able to um, arrest her, you know? Yeah. Wow. With respect to honor killings, I assume you're familiar with the story of the Saudi sisters who were found having uh, either leapt or gotten off the George Washington Bridge uh, in some capacity. They were found duct taped together. Um, they were, I think they were like 16 and 20 or something. It was eventually ruled a suicide. What in the world was going on there? Yeah. Um, I don't know exactly with that situation, what happened, of course, but you know, there have been numerous stories. There was one that I was just reading about the other day. Again, it was, uh, in New York where a father had, killed his daughter and left her in a park. Um, And then of course went around saying it was Islamophobes that murdered my daughter in a hate crime. And it's this, um, he was eventually on his way back to Egypt. They got him. So he's in prison now. Um, But (sighs) what I was speaking about earlier of, having to keep girls in line or through threat of violence or threat of, of you will be married off or you'll be killed. Sometimes they forget that they are, or they get, they get so consumed. Um, and being in a Western country, you can't do the same things that you would do if you were in a Muslim majority country, like in, in Pakistan, for example, with this man, killed his sister because she was taking pictures and putting them on Instagram. And so therefore it was um, dishonorable for his family. And so he never went to prison for it because he was only protecting the honor of his family. So he didn't do anything wrong. Um, Similar story in Iran, a man chopped off the head of his 14 year old daughter. Again, he was just protecting the family's honor because she was, about to run away with a man that they didn't choose for her. So those kinds of things sometimes end up happening in the West as well. And your organization, Free Hearts, Free Minds, 
addresses this and more directly. So um, as we kind of uh, wind things down here, tell us what you're doing there and uh, what you hope to achieve going forward. So um, my organization supports people who are living in Muslim-majority countries who are free thinkers so or who are part of the LGBT community. So that's the free hearts and free minds hearts. Um, and for both of those things, you can be executed by the state. It's against the law. The punishment is, is capital punishment in many countries. And so what our organization does is it essentially offers mental health support, offers psychotherapy to help each individual person to get to a state where they feel confident enough. They, they have the tools where they can start to decide um, how they can make their life better, what they can do to either get out of the situation that they're in, get themselves financially stable, um, in some cases, leave the country. But before you can even start to make that plan and start to think about those things, you have to get yourself out of the, you know, the suicidal, hypervigilant state that you're in. Um, and so that's what our organization does. And I'm really, really proud of the work we do. And I'm really grateful that I'm able to do it. And the people that contact us are really from all over the world. I mean, on our waiting list now, we have people from Afghanistan, from Morocco, from Mauritania, from Egypt, from Saudi Arabia. We have so many people from Saudi Arabia. Um, and, you know, we do what we can to, to help each individual person find their own path to happiness. And the reason why I started this organization is because when I was going through my own, you know, uh, religious trauma journey, I found that therapy was a thing that helps me more than anything. And so that's uh, something that is not available in Muslim majority countries because it's just, it's not part of the society there. It's not part of the culture. And even if it were, there's no way that they would ever be able to express that they're gay or express that they're atheist because of course those are um, punishable offenses. Yasmin, are you scared for your safety? Do you have to travel with security or are you nervous? No, do you not I don't have to travel. Yeah, I, I don't have to travel with security, but I do try to stay as careful as possible. So um, I am an educator. I've been teaching in post-secondary for almost 20 years. And I used to teach at a college that was walking distance from my house. I would walk there and walk back home. Um, and when I started to do, when I started to become um, public with my story, started to write my book, I realized that's a really unsafe thing to do. So I've now, I started teaching online. And now, of course, with COVID, we're all teaching online anyway. And, um, uh, and I never want to teach on a campus again, because I'm just trying to keep myself as safe as possible, myself and my family, of course. Um, and, you know, it's just something that you're always aware of. It's not going to, I'm not going to let the fear of it stop me from speaking out. Initially, when I first started speaking out, I was anonymous. But the letters that I was getting from people in Bangladesh and Pakistan and everywhere, it just, 
more than anything, it made me feel shame because what they were saying to me was, we're so grateful you're speaking out. We're so grateful you're saying the things that we can't say. I mean, these are people in countries where you will get hacked to death in the streets with machetes by just, you know, vigilantes. And of course, you will also get lashed in the streets by law enforcement. But it's it's not just law enforcement. It's the people around you as well. And so when they were writing me letters saying, you know, we're so grateful you're speaking up for us, you know, you're a voice for the voiceless, all that stuff. I felt so ashamed because I wasn't actually, I was hiding behind an avatar. I wasn't using my name. I was afraid, even though I was living in a free country. And I felt like if they're afraid and they're living over there, well, that makes sense. But if they're afraid over there and I'm afraid over here, then who's left? Who's left to speak out? And so I decided to to show my face and um, to come out publicly for them. You know, I felt compelled to do this because we're we're so silenced. And this is why when it comes from the left, it is so painful too, is because we're already so silenced by the extremists, the fundamentalists, the right-wing Muslims. And for it to come from the left wing in the West as well, um, for them to also try to silence us is, uh, you know, it's it's just, it's almost too much to bear. Like it, it is so often you feel like, what am I even, wh- how, why am I even bothering? You know, everybody just wants us to be quiet and to shut up and to endure. but. I won't. I, I will keep on talking. I will keep on going. I've been silenced, you know, more than half of my life. I finally have a voice now. And so I'm going to use it. Well, I'm so glad you took the time to talk with me. You share your story in such a, a powerful and mesmerizing, I have to say, way. And the work you're doing is is so important. So thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for your book. Thanks for coming on this podcast uh, and the many other podcasts that you have uh, spoken (laughs) on. And um, I look forward to your next book and um, I hope you'll come back and talk to me again sometime. Yes. Thank you. I just want to say thank you. I really appreciate you giving me a platform. I know that that's something that a lot of people shy away from me (laughs) for being such a controversial person. But yes, I'm so, so grateful. Thank you, Megan. That was my interview with Yasmin Mohammed. She is the author of Unveiled, How Western Liberals Empower Radical Islam and the founder of Free Hearts, Free Minds, which provides support for women and men who need help freeing themselves from the suppressions of religious extremism in the Islamic world. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. There was an ad in the middle of this show. If you'd like to hear this podcast without an ad, you can subscribe to the Patreon page at any level and get early ad-free access. If you subscribe at the $10 a month level or higher, you get other perks, including a $10 discount on your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. Go to patreon.com slash the unspeakable. I'll be back next week with another amazing guest, which I'll announce soon on the website, theunspeakablepodcast.com. There you can also find the Nuance store, which is where you buy merchandise. Until then, thanks for listening. 
Keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the nuance. See you next time. Guys, it's finally here. The dating show we've been waiting for. Naked and Afraid of Love. It's 16 naked singles on a deserted island looking for love. Stream Naked and Afraid of Love right now on Discovery+. Plus. Start your free trial today. Terms apply. Cox can help make your home smarter and your life easier. Now you can use your Contour voice remote to connect to your home life cameras so you can view them right on your TV screen using simple voice commands. That makes it easy to keep tabs on what's happening around your home right from your couch. Need to keep an eye on the kids when they're playing outside? Just say, show me my backyard camera into your Cox voice remote and watch them while you're in the house. And if you're waiting for a delivery and want to make sure it's there on time, no problem. Just say, show me driveway camera to check on it with your Home Life HD cameras on the TV screen while you go about your day. When you live in a home powered by Cox Internet, you can stay connected to what matters and let Cox take care of the rest. To learn more about all the benefits of your connected home, visit cox.com slash thisishome today. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now for ridiculously low gas prices, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. RCA's local inpatient and outpatient programs are founded on science and delivered with heart from an expert, caring team who will inspire and guide you every step of the way. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now to speak with a treatment advisor. At RCA, you'll be in a community that builds connections and fosters support from peers and RCA's team of medical professionals and recovery support specialists. At RCA's state-of-the-art campus, in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, they tailor your treatment to you and also offer specialized programs like PRIZE, a unique program for people who have been in recovery but have relapsed. Here, you won't have to start from step one. You'll build off the knowledge you've previously acquired in treatment and focus on the areas of your recovery that need improvement. RCA answers the phone and accepts patients 24-7 and is in network with most major insurance providers. Don't wait. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. That's 1-888-RECOVERY.